The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. And uh, we continue our study through the book of Genesis, and we're getting nearly to the end. We'll have this week. Next week will be Easter. And then the following week, we'll have one more uh, final chapter in Genesis and uh, we'll keep uh, figuring out where we're going next as I continue to pray and seek the Lord. And um, so where are we? Well, we've been learning in Genesis overall that God is sovereign and God is good. We saw in the beginning, he created everything good with his purpose was to bring glory to himself and to bless his people. More recently in Genesis, we've been seeing how God, through the Joseph narratives, is using even evil for his good. He was working to get his family Uh, to spare them from the famine. And he did it despite all the evil of the own boys themselves. And so God, we saw last week, ends up getting the family up into Egypt and he's protecting them from the famine and he's exalted Joseph to the right hand of Pharaoh as the number two man in charge. We've been seeing is that we can trust God in our own lives when things seem to be very uh, challenging, facing many obstacles, many difficulties. We can trust with eyes of faith that the Bible reveals unseen realities, that we can trust that God is up to good. And, and in fact, we can see his whole plan is for good, that God is, is a good, gracious patient, long-suffering God. And and in fact, we see his plan in Genesis has been unveiling that we saw beginning in chapter 3, verse 15, after sin, he came to 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 the woman and he said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, though his heel will be bruised in the process. And so we're looking from that point on, who is this seed that was mentioned who will crush Satan? though he will be bruised in the process. And then we see, well, this seed that will come from a woman who will bring redemption and restoration that we saw to restore things as they were before sin in the garden, he will be the seed of Abraham. And then we saw he will be the seed of Abraham, Isaac, not Jake, uh, not Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. And then we got to Jacob's children. And we kind of saw this long extended narrative about Jacob's children And if we've been paying attention, we would think, well, it's going to be Joseph probably, that the seed will come through Joseph because Joseph has been the main focus of the story for the last several chapters. But what we're going to see today is no, he's not from Joseph. He's going to be from the line of Judah. And so what we see today is some new concepts of who is this seed to come who will crush the serpent, who is the son or the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. It comes from the line of Judah. And we're going to see Judah's line, if you continue the story of the Bible, leads to King David's line. And then from King David, ultimately we see comes Jesus. And so the Bible is one coherent story that is tracing how this sovereign, good creator of the universe which has fallen because of sin, he is graciously, proactively restoring through this this redeemer. And this redeemer's come the first time, not as many would expect. The Jews, for the most part, thought he would come like King David. But he came first as a suffering servant. He came first as one, it says in the scriptures, that who would not break a bruised reed. He was that gentle, suffering servant that Isaiah 53 prophesied about. 
But the second time, after he died, he came the first time, today's Palm Sunday, they laid down palm branches as he entered into Jerusalem, but they quickly betrayed him because he was coming to suffer. That's not what they were expecting. But he came to to lay his life down first on the day of atonement, the day they sacrificed the lamb for the offering. He intentionally came to be sacrificed on that day for our sins. But then he rose again. And so on Sunday, the church gathered to, to worship and to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's gonna come again. But when he comes again, we need to understand He comes as a conquering king. It says, with fire in his eyes, with blood on his robe, as one who has trampled over his enemies like a wine press, and the blood has spattered on his robe. So this is an image that is a terrifying image. One of Jesus, not quite this soft mild-mannered Jesus that we often see portrayed in the movies. But this one, he's coming only to oppose those who have refused his grace. Did you hear what I said? Only those who have refused his grace and have stiffened their necks in rebellion against him, who dared to stand against him. When he comes again, he will destroy them. And that's what we see this, this is what's pictured in our text today as we come to focus in on Jacob at the end of his life. The father, Jacob, is calling his children to himself and he's going to bless them individually. And in this poetic, you'll see your your text goes into poetry. In this poetic blessing, it says in the last days and then it's poetry. That's eschatological. It's a description of the end times. When Christ returns, we see a picture of what is gonna happen today. And my prayer is this, that you take refuge in Jesus before that day comes. As Psalm 2 said at the very last line, take refuge in Jesus. Lord, I pray that every single person here today will find refuge in Jesus, that no one would dare rouse this lion, that no one would dare stand in opposition to the king, that all of us would see the grace of that you have poured out in Jesus, that he is offering us forgiveness, restoration by faith in his death on the cross, that none of us would have to take the wrath of God for he is offering to take the wrath of God as our substitute. And so Lord, I pray this morning that everyone here today will seek refuge in the blood of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do this by the Spirit of God, taking the Word of God and granting faith, conversion, salvation this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to look at chapters 48 and 49. And 48 kind of sets everything up for 49. So let's look at 48. I'm just going to read a couple of verses in 48 for time's sake. 48 verse 1, Joseph, <clears throat> excuse me, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So let's get the names right. So Joseph, the one we've been tracking, second person in command in Egypt, all his brothers now, his dad, now they all live in the land of Goshen in Egypt. 
And now Joseph hears word that Jacob, his father, is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Let's go visit Grandpa Jacob. And it was told to Jacob, so Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. So Israel, his name is Jacob, Israel, same person. Israel summoned his strength. So this is some of his last words as he's very sick in bed. He summons his strength. He sat up in bed. And now someone's last words are very important. And so let's listen to what his last words, verse three. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And he blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So let's stop there. What is Grandpa Jacob doing? His last words before he passes away, he calls, he has his son come to him and he has his grandsons at the feet of his bed. He sits up and he says, To the next generation, I want you to remember the promises of God. But he's doing something even more particular. If you compare the event that he talks about, he mentions this encounter where God came to him at Luz. If you go back and read in Genesis what what is actually said compared to what he says here, he has an emphasis on something. Who is the subject of this action? Who is it he is emphasizing that will do all these things? He says, God will do these things. In the original, it is presented more as a blessing that they will multiply, they will inherit the land. Here, Jacob has learned from his life's journeys. He has learned this Jacob who was a deceiver, who was trying to scheme and manipulate and make everything turn out in his own life. He has learned through his journey to Laban being deceived by his own uncle Laban seven years for one wife and he says that's not the right wife he had to work seven more years all through this journey finally as this encounter with God where God wrestles him and humbles him now Jacob has learned something that he wants to pass down to his kids and to his grandkids not only has God made these promises but God himself is going to fulfill these promises that he's made. This is important to us as we set up for chapter 49. Chapter 49 is all of God's future promises for us, the return of Christ. And so the author is reminding us, not only has Christ promised to return and to restore and to redeem all that was lost, the paradise that we saw in the garden before sin entered the world, not only is God promising that all of that will be restored, but God is promising that he himself will guarantee that all those will be restored because he's going to restore it. So God promises that God himself will keep the promises and fulfill the promises. The second point I want to make about these words is notice the term at the very end of chapter, of verse four, he says, and your offspring will have an everlasting possession. This everlasting possession, this everlasting possession, this idea of everlasting changes our time horizon. So what he's saying is what these promises were not just to Israel. This is not just some historical fact where where God's going to give Israel a piece of land in the past. This is God, God saying, this is my eternal plan. 
that what you're about to hear from what Judah, the line of Judah is going to do, this is an eternal plan of God that God will guarantee will happen. God will make sure that he himself brings these promises about. And so we're not just doing a history lesson, we're doing a future lesson. This is our future. We are caught up in these eternal promises of God. And so today, as we look at chapter 49, we're seeing, okay, God has a plan for the end of times. God is going to keep his promises, and we can count on it, and we are caught up in those promises. Now, there's one last thing I want to point out from chapter 48. I won't go through all of it. Let me just tell you what happens in chapter 48. The two grandkids are at the foot, and Grandpa Jacob says, I want to bless the two grandkids. He basically adopts them as his sons. Those two ultimately get possessions or inheritance of the promised land. And we'll see in a minute, some others of his actual sons don't get inheritance of the land. But as he blesses them, he comes and and he's got bad eyesight. This is a scene we should say, this has happened before. And so he's got bad eyesight, if you think of Jacob and Esau, coming to be blessed by their father who is old and can't see very well. And so Joseph sets his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to be blessed such that the oldest would be positioned at at grandpa's right hand because that would be the one of the right of the first firstborn. So he sets the oldest son near his right hand and the younger son near his left hand or grandson. And so as grandpa Jacob comes to bless him, he's about to bless him, but as he does, he switches his hands and he gives what happens? He gives the right of the firstborn to the younger one again. And it's like, what in the world is going on? Why do we keep seeing this happen over and over? Why does the younger continually get the the blessing that he does not deserve? Why does the younger, in all these accounts, why does the scriptures keep emphasizing this fact that the, the blessing is going to the undeserved? That's very intentional. The scriptures make it clear. This kingdom of God that we're going to read about, that God has promised, this restoration of paradise that is lost because of sin, this new heaven and new earth that will have God's saints, God's people reigning and ruling with Christ on the perfect, glorious paradise belongs not to those who claim it by birthright, not to those who point to something they did to merit it or to deserve it. It is filled with those who are only undeserving. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom that God gives as grace through faith in the king who died on the cross for their sins And their only hope is to throw themselves on the mercy of that all-powerful king who has flames in his eyes. And so that's what chapter 48 does. It sets us up and prepares us for chapter 49. In summary then, chapter 48 sets us up telling us that God is going to keep his promises of blessing his undeserved people by his own faithfulness to his own promises through his own provided king. So as chapter 49 opens in verse 1, we see we're dealing with the end times. Verse 40, 
9 verse 1, Jacob called his sons. Now after his grandsons, he calls all his sons. He gathers, he says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall, future tense, what shall happen to you in the days to come. I like the translation I'm used to in New American Standard. What I shall tell you what shall happen to you in the last days. This phrase, the last days or days to come, this, this Hebrew phrase is used three times in your scriptures. It's used once here. It's used another time in the oracles of Balaam, which is talking about the end times in Numbers chapter 24. And it's used by Moses at the right before they go into the promised land. And he tells the people, this is what to expect in the days to come or in the last days in, Gen- in Deuteronomy 31. All three passages use this same phrase, which is translated uh, last days, to deal with the future deliverance of God's people. And at the center of that future deliverance of God's people stands a king. And so this is a new concept. If you're reading your Bibles and you're reading in order, this is the first time we start to see this idea of a king. We haven't read yet, if you're reading in order for the first time, you haven't read about King David and these kings in Israel who has kings. This is a new concept that God's restoration of the promised, of, of the, the uh, garden and all that was lost will come through the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Judah, and he will be a king that brings it about. And so in these last days, lifts our minds to think about the last days of a king bringing restoration. And so here's what he says, continuing in verse 2. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father, about what will happen in the last days. And he begins with the oldest, the firstborn, Reuben. And we're going to quickly, quickly roll through the first ones. And that's basically what he's doing. He's clearing the way for us to get to Judah. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So normally, culturally, Reuben would be the firstborn and would have the claim to the father's blessing and birthright, but unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. And then it's like he stopped, came out of character, looked at his rest of the boys and said, he went up to my couch. This is messed up. I don't know if you remember in chapter 35, verse 22, Reuben slept with Bilhah, his father's concubine. So it's not gonna be Reuben, the firstborn. So we're on to verse five. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul Come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. So we're clearing them out. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Neither one of these gets an inheritance of the promised land. If you'll remember in chapter 35, Verse 30, Simeon and Levi basically wiped out a defenseless city of Shechem, taking revenge. And as a result, these two tribes will be divided and scattered. They won't get inheritance in the land. And God is saying, they are not my chosen line. So these three, number one's cleared away. Number two's cleared away. Number three's cleared away. And that leaves us Judah. Verse eight, this whole entire focus of this chapter is on Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
And that sounds exactly what we just saw happening with Joseph, right? Joseph, at the beginning of the narratives, had a dream. Your brothers will bow down and they will praise you. But Judah, we find out, your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And so what we find is this whole story we just saw about Joseph is actually a parable of what is going to happen in the end times with Judah. All of God's people will bow to the line of Judah as they bow to King Jesus. And so Joseph is not the chosen line. Judah is. And we see that all of God's people will bow down to the line, that, from the, to the king who comes from Judah. Judah's line, as you continue reading your Bible, I do this because I think it's very important that you understand how your Bible fits together as one book. Genesis is the beginning of your entire book of, of the Bible. And in the beginning, you have the introduction to the Bible. And so what we see here is all these themes that are set up and you see questions raised. Who is this seed? What will he do? How will he do it? Well, here we get a glimpse in these narratives of what we read more about in Revelation. Revelation tells us all about the end times. And so here we see it is told that that the line of Judah will have the king. Well, if you keep reading your Bible, you see the line of Judah is King David. King David is covenanted in 2 Samuel 7 that you will have a son and his kingdom will never end. And then you get to Matthew chapter 1. The Old Testament ends with you going, who is this seed? Who is the Messiah? Who is this king who will bring restoration? And you know, it builds a portrait. He's supposed to be the son of Abraham, the seed of a woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. And Matthew 1.1 introduces you to Jesus saying, here he is, the son of David, the son of Abraham, who came from Judah. So Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Verse 8, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's son, Sons shall bow down before you. Verse 9, we see something we're familiar with. Judah is a lion's cub. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Judah being a lion cub? Wake up. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Judah? I know y'all are way too old for this and you've outgrown it, but back when you were kids, what was one of your favorite movies about a lion? Lion King, Simba, exactly. Well, they got it wrong. He's not going to be cute and cuddly when he comes back as king. Listen to what it says. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? This means he'll be like a young lion sleeping in his den after having just devoured its prey. Who dares rouse a sleeping lion? This is no cute and cuddly Simba. This is a ferocious lion. Jesus should not be just pictured as this meek, mild-mannered, sweet guy. He came as a suffering servant. But the scripture says God is patient, he is kind, he is long-suffering, but will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So this king, this lion of Judah, dare not be roused. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff. The scepter and a staff are a king's instruments. 
a ruler's staff shall not depart from between his feet until tribute comes to him or until Shiloh. The scepter and the ruler's staff from the, shall not leave Judah means that all the kings of Judah are only forerunners to, to the Christ, the king, when he returns. When you read the Bible and you see about Israel and they have all these kings, these are just pictures of the king who will rule over God's eternal kingdom. Verse 10, part B says, To him shall be the obedience of the peoples or the nations, plural. This tells us that his, his reign will be much bigger in scope than just King David's reign over physical land of Israel. Christ, when he returns, will rule over all the lands, all the nations, all the peoples. His, his reign will be a universal reign. And so the universal reign of the king who is of the line of Judah is a lion not dare to be roused. Later, biblical writers write about this king and his universal reign. I read it from Psalm 2 verse 8 says about this universal reign. It says, ask me and I'll make, you, I'll make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth will be your possessions. In Daniel 7 verse 13 through 14, speaking of this Christ who comes again, the, the universal reign, he says, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages would serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. These are all talking about Jesus who died, was buried, rose again, ascended to the Father and is coming back to be king over all the universe. Granger read some of Revelation 5. Just verse 5 and verse 9 says this about his eternal scope of his reign, this universal reign. It says in verse five, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And then verse nine, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood. This is why he came the first time to give his blood to ransom people for God from, how, how wide? Every tribe, every language, all peoples, all nations. So I hope you're seeing the big picture of your Bible. This is what God is doing. God is sovereign. God is good. This life is filled with evil. But look what God is doing. Now back to our text today, Genesis 49, 11, and 12. We see... The, his extended reign described in these verses says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Now remember, this is poetry. So what are these images, what are these images picturing? This is a poetic way of saying that his reign will be one of abundance and prosperity and blessing for everyone in the kingdom. In other words, the Garden of Eden. What you saw in the garden, 
God's people living in intimacy with God, enjoying paradise. And here we see the choicest of vines will be put to everyday use, like feeding donkeys and like water, washing clothes, that the finest of things would be such abundance that it'll be used, it'll be treated like water. Think about this kingdom. Think about this existence. It's not some weird cloud existence. It's a new heavens and a new earth's with Christ reigning and ruling, with the most unbelievably glorious planet Earth that you can imagine, absent of sin and corruption and rust and and decay. And Christ, all of his glory, all of his goodness, all of his blessings are so abundant that the finest of things are like the most common ordinary things. It's sad glorious. And remember what he said in chapter 48. It is so certain because not as God God only promised it, but God is ensuring to bring it about himself. And then the remaining blessings of the children, Zebulun, all these names are just play on words to tell you an aspect of his kingdom, what it's going to be like. Verse 13, Zebulun. All it means there is their worldwide reign, not just the promised land. So his reign will be worldwide. And and it's very complicated. Hebrew scholars have to talk about the play on the names. So I'm just going to tell you what they mean. Zebulun, worldwide reign. Issachar, it'll be a kingdom of rest. That Sabbath rest concept you see in the scriptures will be experienced in the kingdom. Dan, this kingdom provides hope for the future. When you are hopeless and you see it seems like this world is spinning out of control and evil is winning, you can't forget where we are in the time horizon. It is not hopeless. Christ will return and will restore all that was lost. Gad has the hope of future victory over enemies. Remember last week we said forgiveness. Part of that is knowing that there will be a day of justice, that God will get vengeance. So we don't have to. We can forgive and grant grace because Gad, the future, tells us that Christ will give victory over enemies. Asher and Naphtali says it will be of a great abundance and prosperity. Joseph, all the blessings from heaven. In Christ, we know all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places are yours in Christ. And in this kingdom, they become realities. Spiritual realities become physical realities. And then finally, the youngest Benjamin, we see that it will be a sudden victory. And so Christ will suddenly come unexpectedly and he will bring vengeance on those who have opposed him he comes with fire in his eyes to eliminate his enemies and we need to understand this very real part of Jesus he's not to be toyed with he's not to be opposed the only thing that should happen is to humble oneself and worship him and throw yourself on his mercy So who is this king? Who is this seed? Who is the son of Abraham? He is the son of of Judah. He is the son of David. He is the one who will come and be restore all that God has promised to restore. We get to the end of the book of the Old Testament and we're wondering who is this one? 
And then the Gospels, which means good news, they announce the arrival of that king. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and so forth. So that's how your Bible works. The, the God-inspired writers of the scriptures have painted this portrait of this king who will bring restoration. And in the Gospels, the New Testament, good news declares the king has arrived. He came the first time to suffer and die on the cross at, to give his blood to purchase from all the nations a people unto God. Those who will trust in Christ will participate in this everlasting kingdom. He ascended, he rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's coming again, and when he comes back, he's coming in a much scarier picture to, to eliminate those who have opposed him. And the prophets speak about that day in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6, describes the last days when Jesus returns as a conquering king to execute the wrath of God on the ungodly nations who have opposed him. Listen to the words of Isaiah 63.1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have treaded the winepress alone and from the peoples. No one was with me. I tread them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Who would dare oppose this king. Revelation 19.11 speaks of the same day. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful, true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a white in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations... And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. 
Do you know this aspect of Jesus? God is keeping his promise to restore his blessings on earth, to restore the paradise that was lost. He's going to do it through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the line of Judah, the son of David. He came the first time as a suffering servant, gentle, patient, and kind to take the penalty that you and I deserve for our sins, to absorb the wrath that we read about so that we don't have to face him in that day and face his wrath. He died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sits on the edge of his seat awaiting to return to execute vengeance and the wrath of God against his enemies, any who would dare to stand against him. It won't be a battle of equals. It'll be just total domination. It'll be a rout like treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So the message is, is clear. There's a clarion call. Take refuge in Christ. Accept God's merciful, gracious offer of salvation from that wrath. After the service, after the songs are all settled down and over, I'll be up here, Granger will be up here. We want to talk to you and help you put your faith in Christ. Father God, would you, would your spirit work powerfully in our hearts this morning? Would you be kind enough to grant us repentance and faith that we would throw ourselves on the mercies, on your mercies, that we would accept your gift of grace, your forgiveness, that your son Jesus would be our substitute that he would take our wrath for none of us deserve the kingdom of God, the grace that you've offered in Christ. It's all a gift. Lord, I pray that this morning that people who are here who have not trusted Christ will see a, a different side of Christ, that he is to be revered and respected May no no one face that day outside of the refuge of Christ. Lord, may we be a people who are humbled by your grace. All of us, our only hope is Jesus. You, You gave us a way of escape. We praise Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.